One of my favorite passages in all the Bible is Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Considering some of the struggles in life, I long for what this verse promises. I want to soar with the eagles. I want to mount up on wings like eagles. I want to be able to run and not be weary and walk and not faint. Of course, talking in the spiritual sense. And yet, one of the things I notice about this passage is that this promise is not made to just anybody and everybody. Not everybody gets to soar with the eagles. But those who wait for the Lord, those who are waiting on God, are the ones who are given this promise of strength and power and joy and exhilaration. But what does that mean? What does it mean to wait on God? If you take a look in First Kings, or excuse me, Second Kings, chapter six and chapter seven, we find that the king of Israel came face to face with what it meant to wait on God. Samaria was besieged by Ben Hadad, king of Syria, and it became awful. So great was the famine that pursued in Samaria that the women inside the city were eating their children. And in 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 33, the king sent a messenger to Elisha and was going to kill him. And the messenger came to him and said, this is 2 Kings 6.33, The trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? You see, God's not going to deliver us. God's the one that's punishing us. He's the one that's causing this problem. But then Elisha told him in the verses to come, no deliverance will happen. It'll happen by this time tomorrow. And all of chapter 7 demonstrates the deliverance that God really brought to those who waited on Him. I think there are some things that we can learn from these verses that can help us understand what we've got to do to wait on the Lord so that we might mount up with wings like eagles, run and not be weary, walk and not be faint. Before we examine that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, You are the great power, the sovereign ruler and Lord of the universe and of our lives. Father, we pray that You would strengthen us. Help us not to wait on our own strength or to pursue our own strength, but to wait on You. Father, we pray that You would lift us up on wings like eagles. Strengthen us that we might run and not grow weary, walk and not faint. Help us to rely on Your wisdom and on Your Word, trusting You for deliverance no matter how bad things get in this world. Father, help us to understand Your Word, to know it and to live it. 
And help us, Father, not to fear those who are around us. Try to convince us to turn to some other path. And forgive us. Because too often we have sinned. Please, Father, do not count our iniquities against us. We know that if you did, none of us could stand. And we are so thankful that you have sent your Son to die for us so that our iniquities could be removed. Father, we wait for you patiently, trusting in your Word, trusting in your power and your strength to deliver us. And we look forward to that day of deliverance, that ultimate day when we'll be with you forever eternally, in your heavenly abode. We magnify and praise your name, Father. We love you, and we thank you so much for loving us. Through your Son and his blood, we offer this prayer. Amen. Waiting on God. What does it mean? I think the first thing that we find in 1 Kings chapter 6 is that waiting on God means no matter what, Trust God for deliverance. There in 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 24 it says, Afterward, then Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it, until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. You know, I, I started to look up, oh, I wonder exactly how much that equals, but I just thought, dove's done? you got to pay silver for dove's done? It really doesn't matter how much that is. That's insane. But that's how bad the famine was. It had become intense for Samaria. And the king of Israel had basically given up. We get down to verse 31. And he says, May God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, The trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And then Elisha explained to him that deliverance is coming. Chapter 7 and verse 1, Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Now, interestingly, there was a captain upon whose hand the king leaned. In other words, he was a support to the king. And in verse 2, the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But, he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. This idea of deliverance that Elisha promised through God, if they would just wait another day, The captain said, this is impossible. This kind of deliverance can't come. Even if God himself opened up the windows in heaven and rained food down on us, this kind of deliverance just can't happen. And yet the rest of chapter 7 is all about how God did deliver them. The Syrian army, hearing a racket in the night, 
thought that Israel had hired other kingdoms to come against them and feeling they were outnumbered, they fled, leaving all their supplies behind so that the Israelites could plunder them and have food and supplies. God did deliver. The captain didn't trust. The king didn't trust. But we can trust God for deliverance. That's the lesson of 1 Kings 6 and 7. Trust God for deliverance no matter what. Look in Psalm 27. In Psalm 27 and verse 2. Psalm 27 and verse 2 says, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversary and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Then look at verse 12. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. The psalmist here is talking about being in the face of enemies, in the face of those who would bring him down. And yet, what does he say? He turns to God, and in the final verse of this psalm, he says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. In the face of the enemies and the adversaries who would beset us, David says, wait on God. He'll deliver. Psalm 31. In Psalm 31, beginning at verse 11, he gets a little bit deeper. Again, this is a psalm of David. Talking about his adversaries, he says, because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in You, O Lord. I say, You are my God. My times are in Your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make Your face shine on Your servant. Save me in Your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon You. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to shield. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. David was facing some pretty hefty enemies here. And notice what he says. He says, I trust in You, O Lord. My times are in Your hand. And so he concludes the psalm with this encouragement. In verse 24, be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. So we can trust God to deliver us. So wait on Him to deliver us. And we need to remember what it says in Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7, beginning in verse 5. Micah chapter 7, beginning in verse 5, says this. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt, and daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I'll wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. I will wait, he says, for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. He says, don't put trust in friends and neighbors. Don't put trust in others. That's what we need to understand. Don't put trust in the world. Don't put our trust in what men have to say. Don't even put our trust in our neighbors and friends. Our trust must be in God. He is the one who will deliver. 
The fact is, while Syria thought Israel had hired other nations to come and attack them, they hadn't. And had they done so, the Hittites could not have defeated the Syrians as easily as God had done. No matter what. Whatever enemies are facing you, it doesn't matter what it is. Is it co-workers who slander and backbite and try to make you look bad? Is it a family or friend who has betrayed you? Is it sin and Satan that's attacking you? Trust God to deliver. However, the second lesson we learn is that as we're waiting on God, we have to be patient with Him even through trouble. I think this is one of the problems that folks really have with God today. And it's one of the reasons people ask questions like, well, if there's a loving God, why are there all these bad things that happen in the world? And the reality is we just can't answer that question because that's whittling on God's end of the stick. But I'll tell you what we learn in 1 Kings chapter 6 and chapter 7 is that the king here was supposed to wait on God, but things got really bad. It wasn't just, oh, I've gotten in some trouble, and God within the next 15 minutes came in and delivered us. In 1 Kings chapter 6, take a look at what happens. In verse 26, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help my, help my Lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor? Or from the wine press? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? And she answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him, and on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath his body. Brethren, that's just grim. It was awful. They had been waiting on God and God hadn't done anything and it had gotten bad. Sometimes we have the idea that if God is going to deliver us, He's going to do it on our timetable and He's not going to let things cross a certain line. And yet what we learn from 1 Kings chapter 6 and chapter 7 is that God, for His own reasons, sometimes waits to deliver us. It's easy to say, wait on the Lord for deliverance. But brethren, what we learn from this passage is that sometimes waiting on the Lord means being patient through some extremely awful circumstances. We lose our jobs. We lose our loved ones. We get sick. And it lingers and lingers. Our children betray us. Our spouses betray us. Trouble arises in congregations. Brethren, sometimes things just get really, really bad. And frankly, I'm just not sure that I can come up with a description that's worse than the one we have here in 1 Kings chapter 6 of how bad things can get sometimes. That doesn't mean God isn't going to deliver us. That doesn't mean we should turn our back on God as the king of Israel started to do. Because God will deliver. Look in Psalm 69. In Psalm 69, again, I believe this is the psalm of David. 
And he talks about how bad things are. And in Psalm 69 and verse 1, he says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. He was in deep trouble. It was bad. He felt like he was in a flood. His head underneath the waters. And God still hadn't delivered him yet. He said, I have cried out. My throat is parched with crying out to you. You see what David is saying there? David is saying he had been crying out and been crying out and been crying out. God hadn't done anything yet. And yet David said he would still wait on the Lord. I hope you recognize what this means. This means if we're going to wait on the Lord patiently, even through hardships, that doesn't mean we sit down and we say a prayer and then we just sit back and wait for God. Well, I said my prayer once. God will take care of it someday. Could any of us ever say my eyes have grown dim from waiting up for the Lord to act? Could any of us ever have said my throat has become parched because I've cried out to the Lord so long and so hard and I'm still waiting on Him, so I'm still crying out to Him? That's what David did. Makes me think of Luke chapter 11. As Jesus talked about our prayers to God in Luke chapter 11 and verse 5, He said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he'll answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence or because of his persistence, some translations say, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. What's Jesus saying? He's saying don't just pray and then sit back on your thumbs. He says pray and pray and pray. That's what it means to wait on God patiently through hardship, crying out until our throat is parched and our eyes are dim, waiting on the Lord to deliver. Look in Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Excuse me, I'm getting my head of myself. Psalm 37 this time. Psalm 37. Beginning in verse 7 it says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And then in verse 34, Wait for the Lord and keep His way, and He will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on the wicked when they are cut off. Sometimes as we're going through the hardships and it gets bad, we can look across 
and see the sinners and how easy it is for them. But the psalmist says, waiting on the Lord as we're crying out to Him, parching our throats. He says, don't look at the evildoers and fret. They'll be cut off in their due time and we'll be delivered. But waiting on the Lord means being patient even through some very hard times. Waiting on the Lord means we need to trust in the Word of the Lord. I can't help but notice that Elisha says in verse 7 before he begins to speak, or as he begins to speak, I should say, hear the Word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. He says, listen to the Word of the Lord. Trust the Word of the Lord. The Lord has promised. I'm going to deliver you then. Here's what I'm going to do. We can trust the Word of God. That is exactly what the psalmist demonstrates. Again, Psalm 25 and verse 5. Psalm 25 and verse 5. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Teach me. We can't wait on the Lord if we don't know the Lord's Word and the Lord's promises. Now look in Psalm 130. Psalm 130 says in verse 5, Psalm 130 in verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul hopes in His Word. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Waiting for the Lord means hoping in His Word. God has said this is the way it's going to be. This is the way it's going to be. I'll trust Him to do it in His time when He says He's going to do it. But if I'm going to wait on the Lord patiently through the hardships, I've got to be in His Word to know what He says, to know what He promises, to know what He said He's going to get. Far too often people turn their backs on God because they have all these questions about why God does this and why God does that, and they don't ever open their Bibles to find out what God says about it. If I'm going to wait on the Lord, I've got to be in His book, trusting and hoping in His Word. Thirdly, I've got to learn to fear God and not others. You know, that was a problem that the Israelites had all along. Here in 1 Kings chapter 6 and chapter 7, they weren't really fearing God. They feared the Syrians. And God used this as an illustration. He was using this as a lesson to teach the Israelites, look, you've got to turn to me. I'm the one who can deliver you. I'm the one that you should fear. I'm the one that you should turn to. And even though at times like this and at others, God tried to teach that lesson to Israelites, they didn't fear God. And so it's no wonder when we get to 2 Kings chapter 17, beginning at about verse 6, we find that God did finally allow them to be taken captive, to be destroyed. In, first, in 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 6, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. (coughs) The Israelites had feared other nations. They had feared other gods. They hadn't feared Jehovah God. 
And yet here in 1 Kings 6 and 7, we see that God is he's giving them a lesson. Listen, I'm the one you need to fear. These people can't do anything to you. Look in Isaiah chapter 8. In Isaiah chapter 8, beginning at verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with His strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. And He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. Isaiah said, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding His face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in Him. Waiting for the Lord and hoping in Him means not fearing what everybody else fears. It's like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, don't fear Him who can kill the body, but fear Him who can kill the body and then cast the soul into hell. I know we don't like talking about fearing God today. And yet the Bible is filled with the fact that we need to fear God. He is the one that can judge. He is the one that can deliver. He is the one that can destroy. He is the one we must fear. And I know it seems like a paradox, but you take a look at what God said to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 8, and what He says is, look, if you fear Me, you don't have to fear Me. If you fear Me, instead of fearing everybody else, that's going to cause you to hope in Me and to trust in Me and to wait on Me. And when you do that, you don't have to fear that I'm going to do anything to hurt you. Fear the Lord. That's what it means to wait on the Lord. To honor and revere and fear God. But not others. Because what's the worst they can do to us? And finally, and I thought this one was just really interesting as I considered this text and what it means to wait on God. It means to repent of our sins. I take a look at this captain in 2 Kings chapter 7 and verse 2, and, and he says, look, if, if, the, if the Lord made windows and heaven opened up, this, this thing couldn't be. He didn't trust God. He didn't fear God. He didn't trust the Lord's Word. And so Elisha says to him there at the end of that verse, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat it. The sentence is declared upon it. And yet, in this context, I cannot help but think of Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11. Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11. Where God declares, As I live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? The sentence had been declared. The captain had sinned. He hadn't had faith. And it was said, look, you'll see it, but you won't eat of it. You're going to die. And yet he still didn't repent. He still didn't turn from his sin. He hung on to it. And what happened? After the lepers had decided to go take their chances with the Syrians, 
and they had gone out and found the Syrian encampment empty, but all the supplies there. And they went back to the king and said, look at what we found. And the king sent out men to check because they were afraid it was a trap. And they found that they were all gone and they started taking their supplies. In 2 Kings chapter 7 and beginning at verse 18, when the man of God had said to the king, Two seas of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and a sea of fine flour for a shekel about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such thing be? Then he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. He saw it, but he didn't eat of it. But what would have happened if he had done what God wanted and repented? God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We're going to wait on the Lord. We're going to repent of our sins. It it amazed me the number of times in the Psalms that waiting on the Lord was connected with admitting our sins, confessing them, and turning from them. In Psalm 25, which we've already read, it said in verse 5, Lead me in your truth, teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Keep reading in Psalm 25 now in verse 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Confessing his sin. Look in Psalm 38. In Psalm... 38, verse 15, But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said only, let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. But notice how he continues. Verse 17, I'm ready to fall. My pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sins. But my foes are vigorous. They're mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. He says, I'm going to wait on you. And I'm sorry for my sins. One more, look in Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Verse 3. Verse 5 is where he says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His Word I hope. Verse 3 he says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Let me just throw that out. Isn't that interesting? In the psalm, forgiveness was a reason to fear God. How does that fit into modern spiritual correctness? But in any event, the point is, he says, I'm going to wait on the Lord because forgiveness is with you. I'm sorry for my sins. Please don't mark my iniquities. Waiting on the Lord doesn't mean that we've always ever been perfect. What it means is we recognize our sins and we turn from them, coming back to God saying, I need your deliverance. I can't beat the enemy. I need you. So the question is, are you waiting on God? Are you trusting in Him to deliver? Calling out to Him. Studying His Word. Living by His Word. Trusting His Word. No matter how bad it gets. Turning from your sins. Fearing God and no one else. Because that's what it means to wait on God. And those who wait for the Lord shall renew their They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. But only those who wait for the Lord.
Are you waiting? 